Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter number three tonight, Ephesians and chapter three, Ephesians chapter three, we're going to find our place in verse number eight, and we're going to walk Back and forth throughout this entire letter, we're going to find ourselves in verse chapter 1. We're going to find ourselves in chapter 2. But we're going to start off here in Ephesians chapter number 3. And I want you, I want you to look with me at verse number 8. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse number 8. You know, sometimes we, we say things like, well, this is my church. But, but we, do not, we do not mean that in the sense that the church belongs to us. We, we mean that in the sense that, that we belong to the church. Of course, we know that the, the church, the Bible says, is the Lord's. We belong to the Lord and therefore we belong to the church. We say things like, this is my church. The Bible's teaching about the church is not uh, an easy one to, to understand. The, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 that it's actually a mystery. Christ's love for the church, what Christ is doing in and throughout the church is, is actually a mystery. And yet with the Lord's help, we can, we can come to understand what, what the Lord has for us inside of a local New Testament church. So look with me in verse number 8 of chapter 3, the book of Ephesians, unto me. So Paul is talking about himself here. And he says, unto me who am less than the least of all the saints. Isn't it interesting? And we've pointed this out before. I'll, I'll do it again just quickly. That as Paul's spiritual maturity grew, Paul came to think of himself less and less. Now, Paul begins his letters to the churches by saying, well, I'm the least of the apostles, which is like saying, I'm the 13th best Christian in all the world, right? And then Paul says, well, I'm not the least of the apostles. And here's what he says. Here he says, I'm the least of all the saints. And then, of course, as Paul writes his final letters, he says, I'm the chiefest among sinners, so it is when we grow in our Christian maturity that our understanding of our own sinful humanity, the depravity of our own hearts, the wickedness of our own way, so it is that that increases. And here's Paul saying, I am the, the least of all the saints, but notice this, unto me is given, is this grace given? So Paul says, even though I'm the least of the saints, there's a particular grace that's been given to me. And what is that grace? That I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Which, by the way, aren't you thankful that Paul took up that mantle of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles? You and I sit in a New Testament church this evening because Paul picked up that commandment, those instructions that were given to him in preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And notice what he calls the gospel. He calls it the unsearchable riches of Christ, which it certainly is. Notice verse 9, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, 
which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Now Paul says, this is the instructions given to me. This is the grace, the opportunity that's been given to me, and that is to namely preach the gospel in parts of the world that had not yet heard the gospel, and second, to cause men to see the, the fellowship that we have with one another as a result of the gospel. And you can look around this room and you can see the fellowship that we have with one another. What brings so many different types of people together except the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then notice, where is this being displayed? It's being displayed, he says, it might be known by the church, the manifold wisdom of God. Paul says, this is what's been given to me to do. It's been given to me this privilege, this grace, preaching the gospel, showing the fellowship that we have inside of the gospel, and demonstrating the wisdom of God in that he has given to us a local New Testament church. So God wants us to understand all that is ours inside of a church. What we're going to do the next few weeks, as our custom is in the beginning of the year, is to just remind ourselves of why we do this as a church, what our purposes are as a church, what are the commitments we have, what's the vision we have looking forward. We take several different week and weekends in order to remind ourselves of some important truths. And this is the greatest of all the truths given to us inside of a local New Testament church. Christ loved the church and he gave himself for it. The church belongs to him and we belong to him. And as a result, we belong and ought to be committed to a local New Testament church. Now, the Lord knows that this is a mystery difficult for us to understand, wrap our minds around. So he gives us pictures, if you will. He, give us, he gives us analogies to help us understand how a church works. There are three specifically. One is what we're going to look at tonight, a body. So in the New Testament, the church is compared to a body. It's a body of believers. So the church is a body, but that's not the only image the church is also in the New Testament called a building. You get to First uh, Peter, he calls it a building. We're stacking, we're, we're putting bricks onto the building of this church. What's the foundation? It's the teaching of the apostles. It's the scriptures. What's the cornerstone? The cornerstone is Christ. But we're all making this building called the local New Testament church. So the church in the New Testament is understood as a body, the church in the New Testament is understood as a building. And the church in the New Testament is understood as the bride. So those are the three pictures that were given in the New Testament of this mystery. The mystery of the church. So I want to show you this first one tonight. Look at verse, look at chapter one. I want, to, I want you to go there. Ephesians chapter number one. I want you to see this first one. Now often what, what's important is for us to understand 
this specific picture of the church. And here's why. Because, and this is your first point, because there is a distorted picture of the church. There is a distorted picture of the church. And in order for us to really know what is ours in the local New Testament church, we need to know the picture. So that way when we see something that's being presented as the church, we're quick to recognize the error. So to, to, to get rid of the distortions helps us to be able to receive the truth. So let me give you a few distortions. This is not all of them. We could certainly make a longer list. These are a few that I thought of. Here's the first. The church is not, ready for this? The church is not a gas station. The church is not a gas station. There are lots of people who think, well, the church is the place where once a week you bring your spiritual gas tank and you sit down and you get it filled up with, you know, some songs and uh, 45 minutes, 50 minutes of a, of a sermon. And then you take that spiritual gas tank and you, you go navigate the rest of your life, just journeying, going, traveling, wherever you want to go. The, the, the church is not a gas tank, a, a gas station. Here's the second one. The church is not, ready for this? It's not a movie theater. There, there are some people who think, though, the church is a place that just offers entertainment. It's a place that you can go for an hour, an hour and 15 minutes. If you go to Connection Group, you, you can go for two hours and you can just escape some of the difficulties out there in the real world. You can find a nice comfortable seat. You can get a nice warm cup of coffee. Maybe you get a, a donut or a snack along the way. You can just leave all of your problems out there. You can come in here, get some entertainment, get some, uh, you know, wipe away your problems, wash away your problems, leave smiling. You can leave feeling better than you were on, on, your, you could, on your way in. The, the church is not a gas station. The church is not a movie theater. Ready for this one? The, the church is not a drugstore. It's not a pharmacy. So, so there are some people who think, well, the church is the place that I go in order to fill the prescription of pain that I have in my life. It, it, it's the place that I go for therapy. It, it's the place that I simply go to for opinion. It's the place that I go to, you know, to, to help me get through a hard season. It's just therapeutic for me. It helps me deal with pain. It helps me deal with anxiety. It helps me deal with depression. It helps me deal with all of these things. And so there are many people who think of the, of the church in this way. The church is not a gas station. The church is not a movie theater. The church is not a drugstore. Here's the last one. The church is not a retail store. There are other people who see the church as a place that simply offers the best product. It's a clean and safe environment for, for you and your family. You can, you can come. You can find some low-priced deals. It's an all-in-one stop. And for many people, this is what they do. They become consumers of what the church is offering. Oh, there's a program for kids? Sign me up for that. Oh, there's, there's a program for teens? Sign me up for that. Oh, there's a program for young adults? Sign me up for that. Oh, there's a, there's a program for married couples? Sign me up for that. And so I'm just, I'm just here in order to sign myself up for all the programs 
that the church might be offering, all of these little side things that the church might be doing. But the, the church is not a retail store. It's not a, it's not a drug store. It's not a movie theater. It's not a gas station. You won't find any of these pictures in the New Testament as it comes to the church. You know, what's, what's interesting about all of these is they all have one thing in common. And you know what, they, you know what that is, don't you? They're all about me. What's good for me? What'll take away my pain? What will entertain me? What will fill me up? Give, give, the, give me the programs that I want. It's nothing more than consumerism, which is, is not surprising. That's the, that's the pervasive mindset in the culture today. I don't know about you, but I don't have a uh, particular loyalty to one gas station over the other. I generally look for the gas station that has the lowest price gas. I don't know about you, but I don't have a particular loyalty to one movie theater more than the other. I don't have a particular loyalty to one store than the other. As a matter of fact, I just spend most of my time going place to place looking for the best deal. And so when we when we approach church as if church were a drugstore, a movie theater, a gas station, we find ourselves with a difficulty in making commitment because we're just looking for the best deal. We're looking for the best one that's offered. And this is not what the Lord would have for us. And I, I, I believe that Paul here especially helps us move away from these kind of self-centered thinking when it comes to the church. So notice, notice with me now, Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to jump in verse 16. Ephesians 1, look at verse 16. Paul says, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Now jump down to verse number 18. Here's what he's praying for them. Here's what Paul is praying for these Christians at Ephesus. And by way, is what we ought to be praying one for another, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe. Well, Paul says that there is absolutely nothing that can compare to God's power. Now, there's all kinds of powers. Satan has power. Temptation has power. Government has power. Media has power. Technologies have power. But, but these are all powers that have been delegated. They're, they're derivatives of, of, of power. The government has power because you've given it power. The, the, the temptation has power because you've given temptation the power over you. But God's power is not like those powers. God's power is altogether different in that God's power is not a derivative power. It's not a delegated power. God is the source of all power. As what Paul said, here's the exceeding greatness of his power to us were. Then he's going to go on according, look at the end of the verse, to the working of his mighty power. 
And he, and he, he demonstrated the greatness of this mighty, exceeding power in what? In verse 20, in that he raised Christ from the dead and he set him at his own right hand in heavenly places far above all principalities and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come and hath put all things under his feet and hath gave him to be the head over all things, even the church. So here, here you see this image of the church as, as a body. So what is, Paul saying, what is, a, what is the most tangible, the most visible, what's the most demonstrable way to know the power of God in the world today. And Paul says it in verse uh, number 20, 22 the, the, at the very end. You want to see his power? Here's his power. He's the head over all things, even the church. The most visible way to see God's power in the world today is through the church. So, so you get... You get there's a couple ideas here. Number one, here's, here's the first one. That Christ operates through the church. Christ operates through the church. So, so think about the analogy of the head and the body, because that's what he just told us. Christ is the head, the church is his body. So think of the analogy of your head and your body. The whole body is directed by the head. The body, the body derives its life from the head. Without the head, the body is lifeless. So it's not just that the body derives its life from the head, but, but the body moves through this life at the direction of the head. The way the head acts, the things that your mind chooses to do, needs the body in order to get it done. Think, think of it in, in this way. If I, if I wanted to, to pick up this pen, so if my head said, I want to pick up that pen, well, there are certain instructions that come from the head to the rest of the body, and the rest of the body begins to collaborate and work together in order to do what the head has instructed it to do. So the, the arm moves, the hand opens, the, 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 the eyesight catches how far or close the object may be. It picks it up and holds it. It brings it in. It forms the fingers in, in order to write. And then the, the head instructs the hand what to write. The hand doesn't operate on its own. The shoulder doesn't move by itself. It's all being directed through the head. And so it is that Paul is helping us understand that when Christ wants to operate in the world, how does he do so? When he wants to work, when he wants to demonstrate his power, how does he work in the world? He works through his body. He works through the church. Now, now, now of course, Christ can act in the world without the church, and sometimes he does, but that is not the normal way that he operates in the world. The normal way that Christ operates in the world today is through 
a local New Testament church, which he says is his body. So, so, so think of this in your life and in mine. When, when you get sick or when I get sick, you go to the hospital. Who, who is it that will show you the compassion of Christ in that moment? Who is it that will demonstrate for you the love of God? Who is it that will remind you of the wisdom that God has in the crisis you find yourself in? Who walks through the door of your hospital? The church. The members of the church. The members of the body. They, they bring you a meal. They, they offer to, to, to get you coffee. They bring you flowers. They share a verse. They make a phone call. They give a text message. Because that's what the church, that's what the church does in those moments. Why? Because the church in those, why does the church do that? The church in those moments does things like that because it's a demonstration of the power of God in our lives. God has given us the church not only for those kind of things, but for, for others. God has given us the church so we can have a, a safe space to confide in those that we trust, people whose lives we've watched people who've demonstrated spiritual maturity so they can walk with us through the difficult circumstances that we find ourselves in in this life. They, they provide biblical insight. They provide relational insight. God has given us his church. So oftentimes when we, have, when we have difficulty, what we do is we run from the church. We isolate ourselves and for the, for the Christian, that's the worst thing you can do. The worst thing you can do when you have difficulty is isolate yourself from the church. Why? Because the church is the body. The church is the body of Christ. You want to see God's power in your life when you're going through difficulty? You don't isolate from, you press into. You don't pull back from, you lean in. You don't avoid. No, you, 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 you go, I... I i got to be at church now more than I've ever had to be at church. I've got some stuff happening in my family and I need God's body to be strong for me in this moment. It's the dynamic power of the church. Christ chooses to operate in this world through the church. And there are, there are many people who go, well, I, that, that, sounds a, that sounds a little bit limiting. You know, I just, I prefer to do my own thing. You know, I've got my relationship with Jesus, and as long as I got Jesus, then, then I'm good. Give me Jesus, but I don't want the church stuff. You ever heard somebody say something like that? That's fine. You can, you can have your own idea. Maybe you would rather do your own thing. I, I know for me, it'd be much simpler just to do my own thing. But is that what, is that what Christ wants? Is this, is this what Christ is calling us to? You say, well, I don't want to get tied up in all the church stuff. Right, but this is what Christ chooses for us. This is what he has chosen to give us, the church. This is what Christ has chosen to join himself to. He joined himself to the church. And he gives us all kinds of images for it. This is one, I'm the head, you're the body. That's what he's saying. 
You say, well, why would Christ join himself to the church? Well, here's why. Look at, look at verse 18. Look at verse 18. It's not just that the church is how he operates. It's how he flexes his muscles in the world. It's not just how he shows himself in the world, but also notice verse 18, the end. And what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Why does Christ join himself to the church? Here's why. Because he is glorified in the church. He's glorified in the church. The church is where he chooses to display his glory. Paul calls them the incomparable riches. That's what, what he said in chapter 3. The incomparable riches of the glory of Christ. What is this, what is this incomparable riches? It's obviously salvation and redemption given to us as individual sinners. That Christ saved you. Christ saved me. Christ saved us individually as a sinner. If you came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, you came to that understanding. You came to that knowledge on your own. It's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. No one gets salvation by default. It isn't contagious. But you place your faith and trust in Jesus alone. And as an individual sinner, he is displaying his grace and the riches of his grace in you in that he's joining you to a congregation of believers. He is saying, yes, on your own, you were isolated. You were an enemy of Christ. You sinned. You lived to yourself. And yet, Christ saved you according to his grace. And now, he's most glorified in taking this sinner, this sinner, you as a sinner, me as a sinner, all of us as sinners, and joining us together inside of a church. There's no greater privilege for the believer in this world than to be a part of the body of Christ. To belong to the body of Christ. To serve, to give, to sacrifice for, to love, to express prayer as we did a moment ago at the start of the service. To express prayer for other members of the body. This is the great privilege. And Christ is glorified in that. Christ is glorified in it. So the dynamic power of Christ and that he operates through his church, he's glorified in the church. But let me give you this last one. The, he will complete the church. He is complete in or, or with the church. Look, look, at, look at verse number 23 of, the, of, of Ephesians 1. Look at verse 23. Which is his body, the Fullness. I want you to catch that word. The fullness of him that filleth all in all. So the church is not an end in itself. The gas station, the movie theater, the, the drugstore, all of these things, they're, they're, a, they're a means to an end. They're, they're, they're not inherently valuable in themselves. But, but the church is not a means to an end. The church is an end in itself. That's why the, that's why the primary strategy for, for New Testament believers, the, the primary strategy for evangelism is win the lost, make disciples, plant churches. Win the lost, Make disciples, 
plant churches. That's why you read the book of Acts, you'll see all of those first century believers going as far as they went, spending as much energy and effort as they did. Strategy after strategy, city after city, hardship after hardship, not, not just preaching the gospel. They were preaching the gospel, but then Paul is leaving instructions, even going back on a second and third visit. And what's he doing? He's gathering together the few converts that were there in those cities. And what's he doing? He's establishing churches. Why? Because he knows that's, that's how God's power is demonstrated in this world. That's how God is glorified in this world. Because the church was not plan B. This was the mystery hidden in God, Paul says in Ephesians 3, before anything else ever happened. And Paul went local congregation to local congregation Doing what? Appointing elders. And that's the third point that we get to tonight. So it's the distinct offices for the church. So you see, there's a distortion. There's a distorted picture of the church. There's a dynamic power available to local New Testament churches. And then third, which will end with us this evening Voting in one of these offices. Notice the distinct offices for the church. So I want you to go back to where we began. Chapter 3, verse 8. And I want you to notice two words at the beginning of this verse, which are so important. The two words are, unto me. Unto me. So, so Paul here is referencing back to something that he's already mentioned. And we won't take time tonight to unpack the whole idea. I'll just give you the summary of it. But it's, but it's, but it's referenced in chapter 1, verse 1. And, and if you look at chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Do you see that? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. So, so Paul here in chapter 3, he's, he's building on that same argument. He's saying... God, according to his will, called me to be the apostle. There's this huge debate and controversy around Paul. There were many in the churches as a result of all of those believers in Jerusalem having been scattered. They were saying things like, well, Paul's not actually an apostle. You don't really need to listen to what Paul has to say. He's a self-made apostle. He's not one called. And so Paul here is, is defending his apostleship. And he's saying, Paul, called to be an apostle by the will of God. And he's saying, this is something that was given unto me. So, in, 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 in general here, he's referencing a, a specific office given to him. It's given to him, what he says in chapter 3, as a grace so that he might, verse 9, Make all men see this great mystery that we've been talking about this evening called the church. So, of course, the, the office of which Paul was given was the office of an apostle. Apostleship. Let's make very clear. Apostles are no more. Apostles do not exist today, and here's why. Apostles were only those who witnessed the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ firsthand. So if you did not witness the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ firsthand, then you cannot 
be considered an apostle. So that's the specific office Paul is arguing for himself. But in general, what Paul is helping us understand is Paul is helping us understand that there are given to the churches specific offices. Now, here's the thing. You sit tonight in First Baptist Church, okay? How many of you, that, that comes as a shock? You thought you were someplace else, okay? We are Baptist by convictional belief. We're not, we're not Baptist out of convenience. We're Baptist out of convictional belief. And a convictional belief that Baptists have is that there are two offices given to the New Testament church post-apostles. Those two offices, do you know what they are? Those two offices are pastor and deacon. There'll be a test on this on your way out. Better make sure you get that. There's two offices in the church. Baptists believe this convictionally. We believe that this is the pattern that we see in the Bible. Doesn't mean that we think we're better than anyone else. Doesn't mean that we think we're more superior than anyone else. Other church models and church piety practice different ways. What we simply say is as Baptists, this is the model we see in the scriptures. So, so the model we see in the New Testament is three things. First, the church is not an autocracy, which means... The church is not ruled by one individual. It's not my church. I'm not, the, I'm not the king of the church. The church is not a democracy. So it's, it's, so it's not that there's no authority in the church. When, when something is everyone's responsibility, then you know this, then it's no one's responsibility. But the church third is a theocracy. Theos is a Greek word for God. So in other words, God rules. The church is under the rule of God. And how does God want us to lead in the church? How does God rule over the church? As Baptists, what we say is we say God carries out his rule in the church through two offices, the pastor and the deacons. God carries out his rule in the church, through two offices, the pastor or the deacons. Doesn't make the pastor or the deacons better than anyone else in the church. Doesn't make the pastor and the deacons more superior and everyone else inferior. It simply says, no, this is a grace given to us by God for this purpose. Let me, let me illustrate it like this. Like in, in your home, for example. In your home, say you're a Christian, your husband or your wife is a Christian. All of your children are Christians. When, when all of you came to Christ, you came as individuals. You all met Christ at the same place. And Christ did for each of you the same thing he did for all of you. In, in a way, you actually aren't mother and, and son and daughter and husband and wife. You're, you're actually sisters and brothers. But does, does that understanding of salvation versus institution of the home, does it mean that children get to say to their parents, hey, you don't get to tell me what to do. You're my sister. No. What's the Bible say? The Bible says children 
Obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. Doesn't mean parents are better than children. Doesn't mean parents are more sanctified than children. Doesn't mean children are more pagan than parents, although that's, there's probably some argument for that somewhere. It doesn't mean any of that. We, we all got saved the same way. What it means is God in his good grace and in his perfect plan for the institution of the home has designed it to operate in a way that a loving husband and a loving wife would live together in unison for the good of their children and that this good should be willingly, gladly submitted to in that they obey their parents and honor them in the Lord because it is right. Not because they are right. You don't obey your parents because they're right. You obey your parents because it's right. Why? Because God, for the institution of the home, has said, here is the way a home works best. And in the same way, God has done that for the church. Here is the way in which the rule of God works best as it relates to the New Testament church. There's two offices. Let me give them to you quickly. First, the office of the pastor. Second, the office of the deacons. The office of the pastor, the office of the deacons. Now I want you to leave off in Ephesians and I want you to head over to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. And I want you to go to chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. In the beginning part of this, you'll see the qualification for the pastor. Now, in the weeks to come, we're going to walk through these qualifications individually. I want you just to put your eyeballs on them for tonight. I want you to think over them for the next few weeks to come so you can be in a, in a, in a, a, a place where the, the word can, be, can have well-saturated your mind. But look at the offices. Look at the qualification for the office. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them, of them which are without, lest he fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. So these are the qualifications that we look for when we look for a pastor. In the New Testament, there are three words that kind of form up our understanding of the word pastor. There's the word pastor or shepherd. There is the word which used here, which is bishop, which literally means overseer. And then there is the word elder. Those three words all, in the most traditional sense, fill up the meaning of the office of pastor. So as the pastor of First Baptist Church, I am the shepherd I am the overseer. I am the elder. All three of those help us understand this one office that's been given to us. And of course, the the big debate here is that, well, should there be a a single pastor in the church? Is where the the big argument happens. So, So who is leading the church? Should it be a single pastor? Should it be a group of pastors? Should it be a group of 
uh, deacons, pastors, elders, you know, businessmen and all sorts of, of other things? Should, should, should everyone kind of have the, the equal say? Well, I told you at the beginning of this that we are convictional Baptist. So we don't, we don't compromise our conviction for convenience's sake. You say, well, I got a business model and the business model works like this. Great. This is not a business model. This is a church. See? So I, I will say it this way. We believe in a one leader model and that one leader is the pastor. So for instance, the church of Jerusalem. The council of Jerusalem takes place. They're having all kinds of discussion about who should be let in the church, who should not be let in the church. And then the Bible says that James, the leader, steps up. And James just speaks. And he says, this is the end of the matter. Here's who we will allow in. Here are the practices we will not allow in. Write it and distribute it to the churches. So word goes out from James. There's a lot of discussion, but the word goes from one man. Of course, you have Paul writing to young Timothy. Paul writes to Timothy, here's how you lead the church. He's not writing to a group of people. He's writing it to one person, Timothy. Timothy, I left you there to oversee the responsibility of the church. The same is true, of course, with the book of Titus. Paul tells Titus, appoint elders in every city where churches are already established. But Paul is giving to Titus a particular authority to go to these individual churches and appoint men of authority. So you've got a New Testament model where there is one key leader who's responsible. We understand him as the pastor, the teacher. It's his responsibility to oversee the church. It's his responsibility to open the word and proclaim it. It's his responsibility to shepherd the congregation. It's his responsibility to act as the elder of the church in this way. The, the understanding here is that this man, this one individual, which of course would, would be a man, at the risk of upsetting some of you, women cannot be pastors, but the understanding is that this one man would answer before the Lord for the direction of the church, the spiritual leadership in the church, in a greater way that others would not. And that's the model that we have here at First Baptist. And a lot of times we get asked questions like, well, well who is it that holds Dave accountable then? And the answer is, everyone. That's the answer. So I meet with our deacons on a monthly basis. I give reports to them. They're, they're not my bosses, but they're, but they're definitely key men in our church who have displayed spiritual maturity, spiritual wisdom. I've learned to trust them. I run stuff by them like I do with the other pastors who serve here. But just frankly, I'm the spiritual leader of the church. It's not something that I've earned on my own, a grace given to me from God, the office of a pastor. Second, and this is what we're talking about tonight, the office of the deacon. So I want you to pick up in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, but holding the mystery of faith in pure conscience. And let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless 
Even so, must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well, purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is Christ Jesus. And these things I write unto you, hoping to come unto you shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is, and here's what we're talking about tonight, the church, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into the glory. Remember we talked about his power. That's all, verse 16, it's all a reference to the power of God being demonstrated through a local New Testament church. You say, so, well, what are the deacons supposed to do? This passage teaches us there's to serve. The origin of deacon ministry begins, many people believe, and I'm, I happen to be one of them, in Acts chapter 6. So we believe in the case that deacons are to serve the, the congregation. Specifically in Acts 6, they're, they're serving the widows, but they're, but they're also maintaining unity. They're also taking up offerings and overseeing the distribution of the offering. This is the, the primary things which our deacons do. They, they help us in overseeing the use of our funds here at the church. They get reports every week. They're part of every financial decision that this ministry makes. They help us maintain unity. Many of them lead ministries, teach classes, counsel, pray with, care for, but then they're providing care. The widows of our church have all been assigned to deacons. We've done a, a full explanation on this already. I'll, I'll just leave it at, at a summary statement for us, for, us for, the pur for the purpose of tonight. But our deacons serve our widows in this way and do an extraordinary job. I want to be very clear, nowhere in the scriptures are deacons called to be leaders. Sometimes we say, well, we need to, we need to find some deacons. Well, who's a good leader? The deacons aren't called to be leaders. Deacons are called servants. Of course, in God's economy, when you're a servant, what are you? You're a leader. In God's economy, the way up is, is down. So, of course, in God's economy... If you are a servant, you will be a leader. But when we set to appoint men to the office of the deacon, we don't first look for leaders. We look for servants. It, many of you in the room have, have been considered for office of the deacon before. You've said things, well, I'm not a good leader. Great, you don't need to be a good leader. You need to be a servant. We don't offer to men positions of, of deaconing inside of the church so that they will be servants. Hey, we, we really want you to do this, but if we give you the office of deacon, will you do this for us? No, no, no. We find men who are first servants. Men who are first servants. Are they serving? What's the area of ministry of which they serve? How do they serve the congregation? Are they maintaining unity inside of the church? Are they, are they men who have wisdom that could help us navigate difficult decisions and distribution of money. The church has a limited amount of resources that need to be handled wisely. So are these men, the men of which we're, we're contemplating tonight, are, are they 
with a meeting of that qualification. That's what we're answering and that's what we're asking.